Well, welcome. Thank you so much for tuning in. My name is Morris. I'm one of the leaders at Christ Church. Um, just give you a few moments um, to find a Bible or switch Bible on if you need one or uh, Google our passage, Mark 15 and 16, on a laptop. And um, you may have kids you need to settle and give uh, sweets to and, uh, oh no, we're not allowed to do that anymore, are we? We must stay fit, the government says, so give them some cucumber. Um, and while you're sorting that out, let me just explain what we're about. This is the last passage in the biography of Jesus we've been looking at over many months uh, called Mark's Gospel, written by Mark. And we've called the series Recaptivated because our aim as a church was to see again how amazing Jesus is and be captivated by him and just his beauty, really. And we're also hoping that if you've been tuning in to have a look at what Christians believe, that you'll begin to see a bit why we think he's the most captivating person who's ever lived. So hopefully uh, you've got a Bible, your kids are happy, you're settled on, ready to go. And I'm going to start by talking about grandparent stories. Grandparent stories, grandparents can tell a story. Um, and it's always clear what you're supposed to do from the story, even if they don't say it. So, you know, little Johnny helps himself to his third cream cake. Granny says, your Uncle David once ate three cream cakes when he was your age, and then he vomited all night. So... Now it's clear what you're supposed to do from that story, isn't it? Well, Mark's Gospel has a very strange ending. It feels very abrupt. If you do have a Bible open or you're looking at one on your phone, you'll see there's an extra section that we didn't have read today that's included in, in most Bibles. And that's a bit of Mark that you would find in some copies of our manuscripts that we translate Mark from, but not the oldest original copies. In fact, if you read it, it mostly seems to be an extra ending copied from Matthew's Gospel because someone came along and thought the bit we've just read, that's a very strange ending, it's a bit abrupt. Where's that come from? I mean, it is strange, isn't it? Here's a story spoiler for you if you're not familiar with all of this, but Jesus predicted that he would be the only person in history to actually die and come back to life. And the Bible makes a big deal of that. It says Jesus coming back to life changes the course of history. Because we live in a world ruled by death, a world ruled by the fear of death, and we know all about that at the moment, don't we? And Jesus coming back to life is the entry of hope. It's saying God's rule of freedom from death is available to anybody who trusts in Jesus. And the rest of the New Testament is very, very interested in that and showing us what that means. But strangely, Mark, the writer of this gospel, he's just not that interested. The key image in this book, the key event that helps us understand Jesus in Mark, is Jesus' death. Michael opened that up for us last week. Jesus' death in Mark is presented as God's end game. All of our uncleanness, all of our separation from God, everything we've done wrong is taken by Jesus in our place when he dies. And at the moment Jesus dies, the curtain is ripped, so everything that separated us from God is torn in two 
and we can know God for ourselves. That's Mark's theology of Jesus' death, what that means for us and for God. But unlike other gospel writers, Mark isn't that very interested in the theology of the resurrection. The people in Mark, they don't even meet the risen Jesus. It's a very strange, pregnant ending. But I think, like the ending of a grandparent story, where they may not tell you what to do, but it's clear what you're supposed to do or not to do. That's how Mark finishes his gospel. So three things we're going to see today from this section of Mark. And the first one is this. It was a real death. In fiction, after someone dies, no one ever has to do the clearing up. We watched uh, the movie Little Women over lockdown, better than I expected. And in that film, a character dies. I won't tell you who, in case you haven't seen it. And then they're all with the character when they die. Then it skips forward in the film to a, a sort of montage of the funeral. And then it skips forward again to a few months later when they're all just processing what's happened. That's fiction. Someone dies and you pass over in you get to look at it from a few months later. In real life, when someone dies, you don't get to skip the aftermath. You don't get to skip the shock. You don't get to skip organising what is done with their body. And as many people have discovered, if you've ever had to deal with a death, what you want to happen is pretty unpredictable because you don't get to dictate when it happens and what circumstances are going on around you. Well, Jesus breathes his last in Mark, and that is the climactic moment when the very soldier who oversaw his execution becomes the sort of first believer in him. Jesus' death demonstrates the open welcome of everyone. It affirms that Jesus is the Son of God, as he claimed. But this isn't fiction, it's history. So we don't get to skip the aftermath of the death. Even a life well lived, even a life with a purpose, even a death that achieves something amazing. After that, everything doesn't fade to black. In real life, there are shakes and tears and unbelief that it's true. And loads and loads of things that need sorting out. And Mark is telling a carefully structured story about Jesus' death. He is also telling us history. And so Jesus breathed his last and a group of faithful, brave women were left watching, weeping, his relatives and friends. And deaths, they leave a body. So Joseph of Arimathea, who we've never met before in the book, steps up and asks for the body so it can be buried to show respect for Jesus. But circumstances get in the way, make this awkward. The Sabbath is coming and in their religion you can't embalm a dead body on the Sabbath. We get this detail about Pilate's surprise. Then we get the centurion, a hardened man who is very used to death, checking whether Jesus is dead or not. And then we're told Joseph, Joseph wrapped the body in linen and put it in a tomb with a stone over a door. And some people saw where it went. 
I guess Mark is marshalling his evidence here against the claim that would come later. Still people making this claim today. It wasn't a real death. He just fainted. Or when they went to find the empty tomb, they went to the wrong place. But Mark says no, it's as real as all of the tragic deaths people have to cope with. The room didn't fade to black. The resurrection story isn't an epilogue about how everybody's coping much better now some, some time has passed because the spirit of Jesus lives on in their memories. This is a real death with a real body that needs dealing with. It is history, not fiction. People checked. People buried him. The people who came back to the tomb on Sunday saw what tomb the body was put into on Friday. It was a real death. Now, I don't want to get into refuting all the people who claim that Jesus just fainted and it wasn't a real resurrection. There are plenty of people claiming that even still today. But all I want to say is this isn't fiction. This is ugly, messy, real life history where people are picking up the pieces. A real dead body has to be sorted out and the Sabbath is coming so they can't deal with it immediately. Oh yes, we've had that climactic moment where the effect of Jesus' death is to bring this centurion to know God. That is still a real death. Sometimes I think, even as Christians, we forget that. We have this idea that when Jesus died, well, Jesus was just sort of God in a meat suit. And so the body died. But it wasn't, you know, a real death like it would be for anyone else. But in fact, the grit of a real death, the grief, the dislocation, the horror, the sorting out that has to be done, that's all part of God becoming one of us too. So maybe you've got doubts about the history. Did Jesus really rise from the dead? Was he actually dead to begin with? Mark is talking to you. Or maybe you've got doubts about God. Does he really get how horrific it is to be dealing with someone dying? Mark's also telling you, God knows that too. Here's the second thing we see, real grace. And when we say grace, um, sometimes we use grace to mean like ballet dancers, they're very graceful. I don't mean grace in that way. I mean grace in the way the Bible talks about it, which is God's undeserved kindness. And there are marks of that throughout this story. As we've read Mark's gospel, seeking to be recaptivated by Jesus, even though lots of us are familiar with these stories, we've been praying that God would reignite our hearts to see how amazing he really is. Well, even when there is no breath left in his body, one of the most attractive, captivating things about Jesus is the way he draws in all sorts of unlikely people. Even... In his death, he draws in people that others ignore or despise. He lifts them up and honours their faithfulness. I wonder, do you remember, by this point, his disciples, the men he had invested in and loved closely over three years, they've done a runner. They've disappeared. They don't feature in this bit of the story. But still there, looking on until the bitter end, where the women who knew him and Mark movingly tells us these women have been ministering to him and following him 
all the way through, right from when he was in Galilee, which was the time he was teaching happier times in the past. A major plotline to challenge us and make us think of Mark is the plotline of the men who thought they would stick with Jesus and had to realise their own failure. But here Mark says there's a subplot. A group of people who, definitely in those days, perhaps even now, were, would have been considered weaker and less brave and less committed than men. Women who'd known Jesus and who faithfully stayed with him to the very end. Now these women didn't get everything right, as we'll see in a moment. But really, even in his death, Jesus calls and gathers naturally the people who everybody else thinks are not going to be much cop. The story of Jesus' church since that day has not really been stories of people like me, men in leadership positions pushing forward. No, if we look back in church history, we'll see things happen when an army of people that everybody else wants to ignore and thinks are insignificant, quietly and faithfully and without fuss, faithfully remain. Stay, don't run away. So no matter how little or ignored you are or feel, Jesus' death is calling you. He has something significant for you to do, no matter how much other people might think. You don't matter. Here's another curveball in this bit of the story. If you follow the story so far, the religious leaders are basically the people who've been hounding Jesus to his death. This council of religious leaders have so far only opposed Jesus, they've ignored all their own laws in order to get Jesus unfairly killed. And so by now we are used to thinking them uh, of them as villains. They have been the warning to us throughout of how religion and thinking you obey religious rules to be right with God, that that whole thing looks good but it's poisonous. It's an ideology that makes you self-righteous and blind to your own faults. But it's one of the religious leaders who comes forward to take Jesus' body. A respected member of that council who also, though Mark tells us, was a believer in Jesus. He'd been convinced. And Mark says he was brave, he was bold, and he stuck his head above the parapet and he asked for Jesus' body. I read that and to be honest I thought that's rather kind of Mark. I might have thought if you were brave you could have said something to stick up for Jesus on the console, you know, before you had him all murdered. But Mark sees his courage, his boldness. See, in his death, Jesus gathers the ignored. And his death also pushes the people who have been hiding in religion, but they know Jesus is real. It also pushes them to be brave and own up to what they truly believe. I've no idea who's watching this or who has been watching this over the last few weeks we've been doing this online. I'm hopeful that there may be someone who's become slowly convinced that Jesus is right and is who he says he is. 
But it may be you're watching this online, but you're keeping your head down at the moment because of the environment you're in. Maybe your community is all of another religion. So admitting what you really believe about Jesus would be costly or even dangerous. Maybe in your social circle, saying, I'm a Christian now, would be regarded as totally crazy and everybody would laugh at you and exclude you. Maybe you work in a very godless environment. And you just think, well, I could just keep my head down about this forever. And maybe you could, you'd just feel bad, I guess, for forever living without integrity. Or you can see what Jesus' death did, death did for Joseph of Arimathea. It called him to courage. As you dwell deeply on captivating Jesus, you can step out of doing what everyone else thinks and nail your colours to the mast for Jesus. It, Joseph's tomb that he put Jesus in, that was one he sort of had reserved for his family. It was a big deal to use that for someone else. But Joseph, Jesus' death convinced him to step out, give something up. Give up his reputation. And maybe for you now is that moment. It's real grace. Because it says, listen, just forget about all the ways you've been backing out of doing in the past. Forget that. You're not stuck in that rut. If you're convinced by Jesus' death for you, be brave. Do what's right. I would suspect, given the type of church that we are, we have lots of respectable people, lots of people who uh, do what's right and move in circles where they are highly respected. But Jesus' death says to you, give up being respected. Nail your colours to the mast with him. One more little marker of God's undeserved kindness in this chapter right at the end. Remember Peter? He's been a big character throughout Mark. But at this point, our memory of him is this. First of all, his brave insistence that he would never betray Jesus. Followed by his running away when Jesus was in trouble. And then angrily denying he had anything to do with Jesus. And not really when he was under any threat, but to a slave girl who had no power over him. She asked him if he was connected to Jesus and he swore oaths on himself that he had nothing to do with Jesus. The biggest boaster was the biggest letdown of all. But look at what the angels say to the women in verse 6. Go tell his disciples and Peter that they will see him again. There's something profoundly beautiful at work here, which people have found to be delightfully true in the history of trusting Jesus. I guess lots of us could look at the hardened Roman centurion trusting Jesus and say, okay, 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 I get that. People who've been to prison and people who were drug dealers and people who were child abusers, really bad people. Jesus' death, it's a wonderful truth. Jesus' death is that they can be restored to God. But many of us, our rejection of God, our particular uncleanness, which is the same as their uncleanness, but it's of a different sort that we've been this sort of religious, always hanging out with Jesus type. And we've got into the habit of just not sticking up for him. 
keeping quiet about him when we could talk about him. Living a double life, maybe. Being a Christian at church, but being pretty embarrassed about the whole thing of that the rest of the time. Saying, oh yes, I'm very committed to Jesus, but I just don't really want to talk to other people about him. In my circles, it's more like the people that I meet. Back when we were allowed to sing, I remember once I sang grand words about my commitment to God on Sunday and then sat in the barber's chair on Monday praying he wouldn't ask me what I did yesterday. I remember when I was younger being really in with the youth group at church and then joining in with all the ways my school friends were horrible to people at school. And lots of Christians just settle into that depressing cycle of failure, thinking what good could I be to God? Background hum of guilt. I'm not much good. I never do that. I never speak up for Jesus. He wouldn't want me in his team. Well, Jesus, who died for the centurion and came back to life, he has a message for Peter. For Peter specifically, he says, make sure Peter knows he's going to see me again. There's a place for you, Peter the denier, on my team. Those two words, and Peter. They just tell us that the Jesus who died and came back to life is gathering and drawing, you know, the women, forgotten heroes. He's gathering and drawing self-protecting religious people, people who pretended not to be Christian once, but they can do it now. And he's drawing consistent failures, people who never live up to their promises to God. His death isn't just for hardened criminals, although it certainly includes them. It's for outsiders. It's for religious people. It's for people who think they know Jesus but deny him. There is real grace. Third thing we see in this story, really strange ending. So all's well that ends. A bird in the hand is worth two. Strange, isn't it, when things don't really seem to finish properly? If the extra bit at the end of Mark is a later addition, and I think it is, it's just such a strange ending. The women went, unsure who would rule the stole away from them. An angel is there, it doesn't even say an angel, it says a young man. And he says, go and tell the others. And instead they ran out terrified and didn't say anything to anyone at the end. I think the key phrase the angel uses, as far as Mark is concerned, is the phrase, just as he told you. Mark's theology of Jesus coming back to life, Mark's point he is making from the resurrection of Jesus is this. Everything else he told you was true. It's all happened as he told you. So his words were true to begin with. You see, Mark all the way through has been pointing us to the power of Jesus' words. He's called us to listen to Jesus. And Jesus has said some amazing, some controversial, and some very life-challenging things. He said the very best thing you can do with your life is make yourself a servant to other people. He has said, Honouring him is more important than any other moral responsibility. 
he has said, get rid of anything that gets in the way of you coming to know him. And as we've gone through, I hope you found Jesus' words captivating and interesting and useful and applicable and thought-provoking. But in the end, his words, what he has told us, is different from anything anyone else has told us. We're not simply supposed to find them interesting. What he says, the content of what he says, in the end that's not the way we judge Jesus' words. His words, what he told us, is reliable and true and needs to be listened to. Why? Because he rose from the dead. Lots of people have written important and interesting words and I encourage you to read them and weigh up what they say. But there is a difference with Jesus. The key question when it comes to him and what he says, maybe the only question is, did he rise from the dead? The things he told you are right. That's not up for debate. How do you know? Because he rose from the dead. So let's take an example. Say today you have a choice to serve someone, to put someone else before yourself, as Jesus says you should, to make yourself less so that someone else can flourish, to welcome and love a stranger, even if it might put you at risk, to give someone the encouragement they need, even though you might only be able to do it through Zoom at the moment and you don't much like Zoom. Any of those things out there, particular challenge, and we're being called to serve. I tell you, it's a particular challenge at the moment because in this lockdown period, many of the patterns we might have had of serving other people have been knocked out of place. Lots of us have sort of retreated into selfishness and just doing what we like most of the time. But there are chances to, as Jesus says, become a servant to everyone by meeting others or working out who needs help or going to a Zoom prayer meeting, whatever it is. Okay, those are Jesus' words. Serve other people. If you are a Christian, there are many factors that are not relevant to whether you obey that or not. It's not relevant whether you particularly feel like it today, or whether you are tired, or whether a Zoom isn't your cup of tea. The question is this, did Jesus rise from the dead? If so, you make yourself a servant to everyone because he says you do. Listen, if you think his words about dying and coming back to life are nonsense, well, feel free to ignore those and all of his other words. But if he rose again, you can't just sit back and ignore what he said. I remember once one of my colleagues rightly saying to somebody who was saying, I don't really want to come to church because I don't think people are as friendly to me as they should be. My colleague said, well, I will work on getting people to be friendlier. But whether someone spoke to you at church this week doesn't make any difference at all to whether Jesus rose from the dead, which is the only issue. And that applies across the board. Whether we do what Jesus says or not, whether we trust him to put us right with God or not, whether he affects our lives, the only question really there is, is he alive? As he said he would be. It is ridiculous to be a Christian who tries to take comfort from Jesus being alive, oh it makes me feel better about death, without doing what he says. Mark's theology of the resurrection is this, it proves what he said was right. Every choice 
whether or not to do what you know Jesus is asking of you now is really just asking, did he rise from the dead? Mark's sense of irony is very strong there with the women. They were previously examples of bravely doing um, the right thing. In this case, they do the exact opposite of what they're told to do and go away and don't tell anyone what happened, even though that's not what the angel told them to do. And this is where Mark's gospel becomes a grandparent story. Mark finishes like this. It all happened as he told you. So go and tell other people, oh, but nothing comes of it. Because the people who hear are afraid and don't say anything to anyone. What do you think that means we're supposed to do? Mark doesn't say this is the response that's required, but it's pretty clear what he's saying, isn't it? It's clear what they should have done, and they didn't do it because they were afraid the end. See what he's saying? Fear, fear of people, is not something that Christians should let rule their lives. It should not be how you are dictated how you respond to Jesus. We started this project of going through all of Mark in January, which now feels like it happened on a different planet. At each moment, it feels to me the bit of Mark we have been in has been right for what God needed to say to us at that time. God's very generous like that. The explosion of the gospel into the world that we know is coming from the rest of the New Testament, Mark finishes by telling us, is limited and stopped by fear. And I think that's a good place and thing for us to think about at this moment. There is wisdom in public health guidelines and following them. But there's far more than that going on at the moment, isn't there, dictating how we often behave. We're scared of illness. We're scared of, you know, my life and work being disrupted by what's going on. And that's actually ruling over many of our decisions. For some of us, it's stopping us doing the things that mean Jesus, the Son of God, would be honoured. You get to the end of Mark, and it's clear what his grandparents' story is saying. It's saying, don't let fear stop you doing the best thing you could do to share Jesus. And that's where Mark ends. He ends by saying, listen, it was a real death. Be convinced of that. He says, second, there is real grace. Jesus' death gathers in this huge variety of people. And thirdly, he says, in his strange ending, if Jesus is alive, do not let fear dictate how you respond to the world. Because if we do, Jesus will not be honoured. Let's pray. We thank you, Heavenly Father, so much for Jesus' death for us. And we thank you that he is alive. And we thank you that that means we should listen to what he says. And we shouldn't let fear dictate our lives. 
And Lord, at the moment, there's so much we feel scared of. And there's so many ways we could end up not serving other people. Please, by your spirit, change us and move us on because Jesus is alive. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.